today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. There's really nothing to do, so why not just look up into space and see what's going on? Uh, and more interest looking up than down lately? Um, me, all the time, especially during a global pandemic. Uh, have you taken a look at the flower supermoon yet? That's the flower supermoon. What the heck is that? Let's bring in Paul Delaney, space exploration expert, professor of astronomy and physics, York University, and is with us now. Paul, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am indeed, Scott. Thanks for having me. Uh, Another great display up in our skies to look at during this uh, global pandemic. Explain to everyone what a flower supermoon is. Well, the flower moon comes from the full moon of May. I think you and I have spoken many times about the differing titles that the full moons in each of the months of the year can have. Well, most people look at the Farmer's Almanac. It's not the only place that you can look for finding names. But nonetheless, the Farmer's Almanac refers to the full moon that happens in the month of May as the flower moon, obviously associated with spring and the coming up of you know all about tulips and so on and so forth. So every May... The full moon there is the flower moon. And that happened this morning, oh, give or take a bit, around about sort of 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock this morning. So tonight, when the moon rises across the eastern horizon, to all practical intents and purposes, it's going to be completely full and it's going to be beautiful and bright. But the supermoon adds a little bit more spice to it. The supermoon references the fact that the moon in its orbit around the Earth is as close to the Earth today as it's going to be all month. In fact, it's the closest it's going to be all year as it works out. And that means that when you see the moon, it is ever so slightly larger in the sky. You and I really can't tell, but you know, if you had a very accurate camera and you took a photograph of the full moon now and a full moon at any other time during the year, you would be able to measure that it is about 10% larger. I hasten to add, though, that you and I can't really tell just by looking at it, but it is, and that means it's a little bit brighter because, of course, there's more area reflecting that light towards us, and it's closer, and therefore closer objects are brighter. So tonight's super moon, flower moon, basically a big bright orb (laughs) in the eastern sky at sunset. So a supermoon is, uh, and I understand it happens, uh, it could happen two to four times a year. These, th- this happens when the moon is as, close, is as close to the Earth as it gets. That's exactly right. Uh, the moon's orbit around the Earth is really not particularly circular. It's more egg-shaped or mm-hmm. oval. And so sometimes it's quite close to us as in 357,000 kilometers, like it is at the moment. And on other occasions, it's much farther away, up to as much as 405,000 kilometers. So as you can see, there's like nearly a 50,000 kilometer difference from as close as it can get to as far as it can get. And whenever an object is closer to you, it appears larger. Yeah, the moon isn't physically changing its size, but because of its appearance, when it's closer to us versus further away, that distance is what gives you the illusion of it being bigger or smaller. From the space station, would it look any different? No, not at all. Uh, except that, of course, you doesn't have to worry about clouds. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that's yeah. a big plus. But other than that, no. Uh, what they will see, you know, they're only 300 kilometers, quote, closer to the moon than we are. 300 kilometers and 367,000? Right. No, it, it's not going to make any appreciable difference. But they will have a nice, clean, clear view, no no cloud to worry about, no rain to worry about. 
and so on. What they won't see, though, is the moon illusion. Uh, the moon illusion is when you put the moon close to houses and trees, things that you and I are very familiar with, and our brain says, oh, my gosh, look how big the moon is. Whereas when you look at the moon when it's high in the sky, well away from the horizon, your brain says, oh, gosh, it looks small. It, it's a psychological thing. Well, the International Space Station doesn't have trees and flowers and uh, houses to compare the moon to, so they won't see the moon illusion. But in terms of the brightness, no difference from their, their perspective compared to ours. Any effect on the Earth at all with it being this close? Uh, you know, changing of tides, does it affect any of that? Absolutely, yep. Tides, uh, when the moon is closer to us, are slightly higher. So they are accentuated when the moon is closer, and they are diminished a little bit uh, when it is further away. Uh, realize that you know that variation that I spoke about, that 50-odd thousand kilometers, it's very much a secondary effect. So the moon is uh, the principal uh, agent for tides on Earth, followed by the sun. It's, it, the moon's influence is about twice as powerful as the sun's influence. And when the moon and the sun sort of are either on the same side of the Earth or completely diametrically opposite, that's what raises tides most significantly. So during any full moon, you have sort of stronger tides. During any new moon, you have stronger tides. When you've got the moon this little bit closer, it does in fact add to uh, the, the tides. But it, that's very, very much, you know, you know, I guess a tertiary influence compared to the normal moon's influence and the normal sun's influence. But it is you know there. It, it, in a layperson's terms, why does the moon influence tide? Gravity is the short answer. Uh, yeah. You stay on the surface of the Earth because the, the Earth is a massive object and it exerts a strong gravitational pull on you courtesy of its mass. You are also influencing the Earth. You are you know, uh, having a gravitational influence on the Earth, but of course your mass compared to the Earth's mass you know, vastly different. So the Earth is what generates, the mass of the Earth is what generates uh, gravitational force. The Moon, of course, has uh, about 1% the mass of the Earth, and it too is exerting a gravitational force, not just on things that are on its surface, but around it. And so the Moon exerts a gravitational force on the Earth, and it is the gravitational force is always an attractive force. It's always pulling things towards it. So the moon is trying to pull the Earth towards it, uh, and the influence it has on what we call the near side of the Earth versus the far side of the Earth, that difference there is what helps give rise to you know, what we refer to as the tidal bulge. The tidal bulge is not just on the near side of the Earth to the moon, but also on the far side. It's a symmetrical bulge. But the, the short answer is, gravity. Gravity wants to pull things towards it, and in the case of the moon, it's a fairly substantial object, 1% of the mass of the Earth. It's pulling everything towards it, and of course the water is more easily moved than uh, rocks and landmass. That's much more solid. Uh, we've often heard that a full moon affects people. It affects personality. We know that the body is, the, is majority fluid, is water. Is it accurate that the full moon does affect uh, life, your personality in some way? It doesn't affect personality. There's been many, many studies over the last hundred years or more. You've often heard the fact that you know, there's more crime during yeah. the full moon. You've heard that there's, you know, well, you've heard all sorts of things about the full moon. 
when you do a very careful statistical study of it, there is actually no correlation with any phase of the moon with respect to human behavior. Uh, however, there, because of the tidal action, there is some evidence that that does influence you know, the circulatory system of the human body. And so I, I guess if you're talking about raging hormones and things along those lines, that there is some rationale as to why the full moon, when it's lined up, as I said, with the sun and so on, does accentuate tides. There is higher tidal action. But you're in an area which is now deep into as much psychology as it is biology. Hmm. What, we, what I can say to you is that when you look at crime statistics, hospital emergency room statistics, things along those lines where you can physically count what's happening on a day-to-day basis, there is no correlation with the phase of the moon. Is there a part of the world, whether it's near the equator or the poles, the axis, whatever, where the moon is more influential? Uh, near the, uh, the... The answer to that is, is not as simple as I'd like it to be. Uh, you know, t- tidal action happens all around our planet, not just in the, the equatorial plane. Yeah. So water is influenced all around the planet at the poles as well as the equator. But the influence is stronger along the line of center. So if you drew a line from the Earth center to the moon center, along that line is the strongest gravitational influence. Obviously, if you now go to the poles, that is off that line of center. So there is less influence at the poles, but it is still distinct. It is still measurable. It still exists. It's not as if it suddenly drops to zero there. But along the line of centers, if you will, from the center of the planet to the center of the moon, that's where the strongest gravitational influence is. You know, after all these years, Paul, I think I'm going to have to start paying for classes. Uh, (laughs) I know, exactly. I'm going to have to sign up. Um, So what will we see tonight? Uh, And again, weather play a factor here tonight? Oh, absolutely. Um, Unfortunately, you know, uh, the visual astronomy clouds are a real pain. If it's cloudy tonight, stay inside. But if it's clear... At sunset, that's when the moon will be rising, just a little bit after sunset moonrise in the east. And as I said, because it's only a few hours after the technical moment of full moon, it will, to everybody's uh, appearance, it will look completely full. It will be big. It will be bright. As I say, look for the moon illusion. uh, And then, yeah, watch it for the half an hour as it climbs above the trees. And so it will be a spectacular sight. That's when your best photography is because you can frame the moon in and around tree branches or, you know, between neighbors' houses and so on. So that's when the best images are. And, of course, there's a little more color because you're looking through thicker areas of the atmosphere, perhaps a little bit of pollution. So you get some oranges and yellow tinges. That, you know, moonrise and moonset are arguably the nicest moments. And so tonight here in uh, Ontario, that will be sort of like 8.30, 9 o'clock for the rising time. Paul Delaney with us, space exploration expert, professor of astronomy and physics at York University. Paul, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Take care. Bye. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. uh, You know, as we're all stuck at home kind of watching the Netflix and anything that is uh, in front of us, 
uh, even if it's uh, 500 reruns of something we've seen already 500 times. Uh, Amazon has bought MGM Studios, one of the big old archaic studios of the Hollywood era, uh, for nearly $9 billion U.S. What does that mean? What do they get? Let's bring in Marvin Ryder, professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University. He's with us now. Marvin, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm great, thank you, and glad to be with you. So uh, we, we're certainly seeing these Internet companies buy up content. What does this mean? What are your thoughts on this latest acquisition? Well, a, a couple of things. Uh, first, I think we have to start with the premise that Amazon is worth roughly, uh, haven't checked today's stock total, but worth roughly $1.6 trillion, that's with a TR, <laughs> trillion dollars. So spending $9 billion on MGM is, is nothing. That would be like you pulling a bright, shiny dime out of your pocket and giving it to somebody. It's not a lot of money. So wh- why are they doing this? Well, uh, you mentioned that we're stuck at home and we're watching streaming services. The, the big daddy, if you will, in that market is Netflix. Netflix has 210 million subscribers around the world. But just on its tail is Amazon Prime. Now, of course, Amazon Prime is more than a streaming service. In fact, when they created Amazon Prime, it was for those people who were fairly dedicated Amazon shoppers who wanted to get sneak previews on deals and faster shipping and maybe even no charge shipping on certain things. And you paid a fee once a year for that, and you'd get these bundle of benefits. And so they added to that bundle of benefits both a streaming music service, so that you didn't have to subscribe to one of those, and then they added television content, both, as you pointed out, reruns or rebroadcasts, but they also produced some new content, and they felt that as Disney came together, they needed to do something. So today, Amazon Prime has about 200 million subscribers, 210 roughly for Netflix, 200 for them. Third place is Disney+, Plus which has just come about in the last couple of years, but already there are over 100 million subscribers. And those are your three big horses in the race. So they're going to continue to do this buy-up content to give you a reason to subscribe to them over somebody else. Already you, as the consumer, are sometimes learning that the show you want to see is not on your provider. So then you Mm. might want to stream to another one, and then you're back to like cable television. So it's an interesting, turbulent time, whether it is true cable TV or this new streaming business to see where consumers are going to go. And these companies have now become what ABC used to be, CBS and NBC, as far as television juggernauts, it looks like. That's the way it's going. Yes, although uh, ABC is part of the Disney Plus family, and NBC is part of the Universal family. So what you've seen is a a, a conglomeratization of these industries that there isn't one single platform anymore. If I have a TV show, I want to think about it on broadcast TV, but I want to think about streaming rights, want to think about the DVDs or other ways of getting the product out there. I've got to have the websites and the TikTok and the Instagram and everything else. There is no single media platform, and so the big get bigger. Where does this leave Netflix, who were very much the pioneer in this, started out actually as a, a video DVD right. distributor, and then moved in? We know that they're certainly putting a lot more into content. Content is king now, not just having the ability to distribute it. So where does this leave Netflix? Well, there's a couple of things in here. Uh, you mentioned that some of them are getting into content production. Well, guess what? That's quite a different business model than got them where they are. In other words, the technology I need to stream video to your home, to have 
you know, cloud computers and server farms and, and send content to you is quite a different skill than producing a successful TV show like The Handmaid's Tale or, or uh, you know, uh, the, some of the Jedi stuff with the Star Wars. And, and the interesting question for me is, although you've got a lot of money, where are you going to get the talent to actually produce good content? Now, you pointed out that during COVID, we've sometimes watched questionable content. You might remember Tiger, what was it, Tiger King from last year? <laughs> yeah, Not yeah. exactly pushing the bounds of, of uh, cutting-edge television. <laughs> You've got to watch something. But ultimately, in the, in the next year or two, as COVID fades in the background, we're going to be a little more discerning about what we watch. Can you produce first-rate content? And otherwise, you can spend a fortune to produce a show that nobody watches. Uh, and so, you know, you got to watch. Same thing with movies. You, you remember some of the biggest flops in movie history, Heaven's Gate that brought down United Artists, $140 million that only raked in $10 million at the box office. It did in the whole studio. So I am a little concerned about this. It's a different story if you're buying up an existing catalog. So in the case of MGM, if you're buying their catalog of movies and say, I'm going to add that, I get that. I understand that exactly. But if you're buying MGM because it also sits on a whole lot of sound stages and television equipment and movie equipment, and I want to use that to produce Amazon movies, mm, you know, Mr. Bezos, are you sure you know what you're doing there? That's a lot different than me ordering something and getting next day delivery. Uh, so we're seeing technology fusing with creativity. Will this end up being a battle uh, between quantity and quality? Yes, uh, and and uh, and creative rights, etc. So to give you another little example, well, one of the prized possessions in the MGM catalog is its collection of James Bond movies that go back for the better part of 50 years. But MGM has a complicated relationship with the broccoli family. Now, I'm saying broccoli, not in terms of the vegetables, but in the original James Bond, they were produced by a man who had the lovely name Cubby Broccoli. He has since passed away, and now the control of those films has gone to his daughter, Barbara Broccoli, and she is the one responsible for the next James Bond film, which should debut at any time now, uh, something like There's Not Enough Time to Die or something to that effect. Um, uh, clearly, they have to be consulted. So if Jeff Bezos says, well, what we're going to do is we're going to do a James Bond uh, TV series, you know, uh, uh, little mini-series of 10 episodes at a time, not so fast, even though MGM broadcasts those, you'd still have to get the Broccoli family in. And again, it's a little different than the business he was in before. But we're going to see more of this. I think ultimately um, we may see cable channels have to merge with some of these streaming channels and then change their mode of operation completely. Um, even here in radio where you and I are talking, you know, you are part of the, the global network. Um, you know, they may very well wind up being acquired by a, by an Amazon who says, uh, not only am I going to give you something to, to view on your TV, but I'm going to do these as a series of podcasts that mm. you can download and listen to. I, I just know we're in for a very turbulent time over the next decade in media. Where does that leave traditional networks? 
Uh, again, just to be acquired, same way? Yeah, probably. Now, we have an interesting situation here. We have CTV, which is a private broadcaster, and that seems to make some sense that it could be acquired by somebody already. Bell bought it here in Canada, bigger part of his network. But what does that do with the CBC? Or what does that do with the BBC in Britain? You know, those are public networks, and we've always argued there's a reason to have some public investment in television, non-commercial interests. Do they have a future? What does it mean for PBS in the United States? So I, I think there's going to be some very interesting questions asked in this industry. In terms of Mr. Bezos, was this a good purchase? I can tell you that some other people had looked at buying MGM, and the best they could come up with was a $6 billion figure for the company. And he comes in at $9 billion, and most people are saying, Jeff, you overpaid by at least 50% for these assets. But again, you know, he's a company that sits on a whole lot of cash. Nine billion dollars when your company is worth 1.6 billion, it's you know it's the lint that falls through the cracks. So <laughs> I, I think in his situation, uh, he just wanted it, and he didn't really care if it was the world's best investment. Now that you got it, let's see how you use it. Marvin Ryder with us, professor at the Groot School of Business, McMaster University, Amazon buying MGM Studios for nearly $9 billion U.S. Marvin, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. I will. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.